We are in a, the midst of a series uh, called Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. And I just want to, as quick as I can, remind you what it is we have looked at, and then we will move ahead building on where we left off last week. We've defined worldliness as fallen values expressed in culture. Fallen values expressed in a given culture at a, at a given time. Now, this issue that we're discussing, now this the fifth week, of living right in a world gone wrong is important because there is such a thing as worldliness, this, this negative notion given in Scripture, defined, as I've said, fallen values expressed in culture. And the Bible is replete with uh, references to the world in negative terms. The Bible speaks of the world system and its, its values negatively. So there's something wrong with the world. And thus the need for us to think about how can I live right in a world system, uh, in, in a system in which the values that are expressed in culture, 2012 Southeast Michigan, America, how can I live right in a world system that has gone wrong? And Jesus addressed this in John 17 when he prayed to the Father that my followers are in the world, but keep them from being of the world. So the sphere of their activity is both physically in the world and in the realm of this world system that prioritizes and values and loves and desires things that are contrary to God's original design, God's intent, all that is right. They're in that, but help them not to be of that. But there are different ways of forming that relationship. The right way is to be in it, not of it. But I've told you that there are those who have tried to work out that relationship in other ways. To not be in it and not be of it. So to withdraw yourself from the world. Isolate your, yourself from the world. Or to be in it and be of it. That's your average worldling. Somebody who doesn't belong to Christ, is not a follower of Christ. And so they're immersed in it, in it and of it. And then there is your average evangelical today who's not in it but is still of it. That is, we have our own stuff, we put our own labels on it, but it's still just as worldly. It still expresses the values of the world. So this is a, a big issue because Jesus talks about it and the Bible speaks of the world a number of times and yet it's one that's been very hard for Christians historically to negotiate. And so I wanted to spend a number of weeks then talking about how we can indeed live right in a world system that's, that's gone wrong. Last week, uh, we looked at the issue, and the issue is we need to be in and not of. The problem, though, for the, the culture, when it rejects God and God's truth, is that it leaves them with no basis for determining wrong. And so... Our objective is to live right in a world that's gone wrong. Everybody agrees that there's something wrong, including those who aren't Christians. And yet, without a Christian worldview, you have no basis for defining wrong. How do you know it's wrong? Maybe this is the way it's supposed to be. Maybe this is the best of all possible worlds. How do you know that the way it is ain't the way it's supposed to be? And the only way you can know that is if you have something against which to compare it. But without God and His revelation to us, 
you don't have that. And as a result, the issue is we need to be in the world, not of it. But the problem is, from the world standpoint, we have no basis for even knowing that it's wrong. We sense that it is. We say that it is. But we have no rationale for justifying that. The world, because they've rejected God and rejected His, his revelation to us, has no categories for things distinguishing things like sin personal offenses that I commit, moral wrongs that I do, and then suffering, things that are done, done to me. And thirdly, they have no clarity, therefore, on ethical issues. What's the reason for all of that? Well, it's because the world, in the way it lives, is, is foolish. And the world has given itself to foolish, foolishness. And uh, it is foolish because of Romans chapter 1, rejecting the God that has, has made us and has told us his, his truth. And so we find ourselves in a world, living in a world that has, has gone wrong. The problem is that the world doesn't know how to define the, the, the issues properly. The reason is, is because the world is rendered foolish having rejected God, and then there are major consequences that go with that as, as well. And so today, I would like for us to continue now looking at what the Bible has to say about this issue of living, in, living right in a world that's, that's gone wrong. All agree that there's something wrong, but don't agree on what it is and why it is. G.K. Chesterton, and this quote is attributed to him, whether he's the one who actually said it first, I don't know, doesn't matter. But he's credited with saying, when people stop believing in God... They don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. When people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They'll believe in anything. And I experienced that Friday night. Friday night, my family attended graduation at my girls' school in Allen Park. After the graduation, my 11th grader was going out with her friends. She can drive now, but we still don't like her driving at night. So when she goes out with her friends, my job is to wander around the downriver area, <laughs> waiting until I receive a cell phone call from her saying, you can pick me up at X location. So she was on the hill in Allen Park. You guys know the shopping mall There's on the hill in Allen Park near Outer Drive. She's at Chili's there with her friends. And I have to hang out somewhere in the vicinity of the hill. So I go on the hill, and there is uh, a Barnes & Noble up there. Now, at this point, it's about 10 o'clock. I don't know how long Barnes & Noble is, is open, but on Fridays, they're open until 11. So I go into the Barnes & Noble as I am waiting for my daughter to call me. I ask for the religion section. I'm pointed to the religion section. I'm looking at books in the religion section. And I'm going through titles, and I'm looking them up on my phone on Amazon. How cheap can I get that on Amazon? Can I download it on my Kindle while I'm standing here? <laughs> and so I'm looking at all these titles I need or want, and, and a voice from behind me says, Lots of books here, eh? And I turn around, and there was an older gentleman who had said that, and I want you to know that I resisted the temptation. <laughs> you know, it is a bookstore. <laughs> I resisted that temptation. Uh, lots of books. So he, he has purposely 
seen a guy looking at religious books, and he wants to strike up a conversation. And we did. And he says, have you ever heard of a guy named Edgar Casey?" And I said, well, I've seen his name in print. I didn't know it was pronounced Casey. I thought it was uh, pronounced Case, but I've seen his name. He says, well, what do you know about him? Well, I know he's taught some philosophy, and he dealt in metaphysics, and, uh, but that's about it. And he says, well, uh, what do you think of him? And I said, well, let me ask you this. What does he think of Jesus? You want to start a conversation? You started it. <laughs> What does Casey think of Jesus? We says, what do you want to know about what he said about Jesus? I said, did he say Jesus is God? Now, I just want to stop before I go on. And I want to relate that story because it relates to, I think as you'll see, Chesterton saying, when people stop believing in God, it's not that they don't believe in anything. They'll believe, they'll believe just everything. They don't stop believing. They'll just believe anything, said Chesterton. So you'll see that from this guy, I think. But I just want to stop at this point and suggest to you that when you speak to someone who is not a Christian, always point the conversation to Jesus. And immediately I want to know, what does Casey believe about Jesus? And in turn, what do you believe about Jesus? And this guy then says to me, well, he believes in Jesus. I go, good, what does he believe about Jesus? Right? Because everybody believes in Jesus. All the cults, everybody has to tip their hat to Jesus. Do not be fooled by anybody saying, I believe in Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? Who is Jesus? I said then, he believes in Jesus. Does he say that Jesus is God? And this gentleman said, he's the son of God. I said, let me ask it another way. Is he God the son? You see, I'm continuing to push for is Jesus God? Because no false belief, no cult will say Jesus is God. Well, he wouldn't say that. He said, but you know, Case had these Marvel Casey, excuse me, had these marvelous uh, cures for physical ailments. So now he starts going on to physical ailments. And did you know if you rub fish oil on your arm? I go, no, I didn't know that, and I don't care. <laughs> and he, has, he pulls out of his satchel this big book written by Casey. And this guy has got this thing dog-eared and highlighted. And he turns to it, and he reads these remedies that this guy had come up with for physical ailments. And he says, you know, what do you think of that? And I said, you know, it's beautiful. If it makes you more physically healthy, go for it. But did Casey ever come up with a solution to the ultimate health issue? What is the ultimate health issue? It's death. Which is another suggestion I make to you. When you talk to unbelievers, bring it back to Jesus. And then as you talk to them about Jesus, press home the uniqueness of Jesus. Ain't nobody like Jesus. Nobody. Because Jesus is God. And Jesus conquered death. So did Casey take care of the ultimate health issue? Where is Casey? He's dead. 
Well, he's not all that healthy. The fish oil? I mean, really? You've got to go through the fish oil, and then you're going to wind up in the same spot as me? <laughs> Give me the McDonald's and get me out of here quick, you know. And, 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 and so I say to him, you know, what I'm trying to show you, friend, is that Casey disagrees with Jesus, and Jesus is God. And so instead of reading Casey and trying to fit Jesus in, what you ought to do is read Jesus and see if Casey fits in. That's what you ought to do. He says to me, well, you know what Casey said. So he keeps trying. Casey said, you know, there were, there were five uh, races, that was his term, races of people originally, in five different spots on the earth. So there were five Adams and five Eves. I said, I, th- I thought you said he believes in Jesus. Well, he does. Well, Jesus said there's one Adam and one Eve. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I believe in Jesus, and then contradict Jesus at the same time. Then he did what you have to do. You have to then start attacking the Bible. See, so notice, it starts out, Jesus is cool. I believe in Jesus. But then you say, is Jesus God? I don't know about that. And, you know, there's all this other stuff that's, that's true, but it turns out it's contradictory to what Jesus said. So you can't believe in Jesus and believe in stuff that contradicts what Jesus said. So now I'm going to have to go after the Bible. And that's what he then attempts to do. So all of this feigning I believe in Jesus and the Bible and all that, now here it comes. And he says, well, you know, Casey said, he keeps quoting Casey. Casey said that the Bible has come to us through a series from, of translations from one language to another language to another language to another language. Anybody ever heard that before? People say this all the time. And the word I used was poppycock. You would think I could have come up with something more sophisticated than that, but at this point it's 10.30 at night on a Friday. And, and he said, what? <laughs> and I said, that's garbage. What Casey told you is garbage. The Bible has not come to us through a series of translations from one language to another language to another language because where he's going to go is this. The Bible has totally lost its meaning. We don't know what its original meaning was because it's been translated so many times. It's been translated one time. You know that? One time into your language. The Old Testament from Hebrew into English, the New Testament from Greek into English, one time. Not a series of translations. And further, I said to him, so now you're attacking the Bible, but you told me at the beginning that you and Casey believe in Jesus. And what I'm recommending to you, friend, is that you find out who Jesus is. And you look at what Jesus said. And you compare everything and everyone to that. I said, so I'm going to leave. I'll call you Joe. We hadn't even exchanged names. He said, my name's Bill. All right, I'll call you Bill. Bill, I'll pray for you. And I recommend that you read God's word and compare everything to that. At that point, my cell phone rang, and my daughter said, pick me up at Chili's. So that was my Friday night. Now, why, why do I bring that story up to you? Do, do, you see what, do you see what Bill was doing? Once you reject the solid basis of truth that God has given us in Scripture, you're open to anything. And here's a guy 
sincere as he could be, I mean an evangelist for Edgar Cayce, with a Bible of sorts, right? His big book, dog-eared and highlighted, it has got some of the worst nonsense in it you've seen. He showed me a lot more. <laughs> but this guy believes it. You see, when people stop believing God, it's not that they stop believing altogether, it's that they will believe anything. Now, I say when people stop believing in God. That's the consequence. And that's what makes this world that is already wrong become worse. That people do not believe in God and the truth that this God has given us. But don't most people believe in God? How do we reconcile that? That on the one hand, I'm saying that the problem that we have is first and foremost that people that people don't believe God. They stop believing God. But every survey tells you that most people believe in God. 90, 95% of people will say, I believe in God. You see those surveys all the time. So how do we reconcile, on the one hand, how do I reconcile, saying that the problem ultimately is that people have lost their moorings as attached to God our Creator, and yet most surveys show most people believe in God. Here's how. There's, there are two different kinds of atheists. You see, there's the philosophical atheist. There's the person who writes books. Christopher Hitchens. I mentioned him a few weeks ago. Richard Dawkins. Uh, these are the people who are philosophical atheists. They think about this. And they, and they have intellectually arrived at a position that says, I don't believe there is or ever was a God. Philosophical atheists. Those are very few people. But the largest group of people are not philosophical atheists. You know what they are? They're practical atheists. The reason I say that the world we live in has gone wrong and is made worse because people are detached from belief in God is not because most people will fill out a survey and say, I don't believe in God. Most people actually say the opposite. I believe there's something out there. It's not that most people are philosophical atheists. It's that most people are practical atheists. Now, how do you know a practical atheist? A practical atheist is identified when he or she has a problem and in figuring out what the problem is and how to fix it, God is nowhere to be found. God's not part of the equation. A practical atheist is somebody who will say on paper, I believe in God. But in practice, in their everyday life, with the stuff they have to face, God makes no difference. And I contend most people are practical atheists. And I will just say, convicting so I'll move on quickly because I don't like to be convicted. Many professing Christians behave like practical atheists. When it comes to our issues, where's God? How does God fit into this in practice, in real life? And so that practical atheism, as we try to deal with the wrong that is in the world, everybody agrees there's wrong but how do we deal with it? And the way it is most often dealt with is via practical atheism. And that results in this. It results in locating 
responsibility for the wrong outside of me. If I detach God, if I detach God from the equation, now it's just it's just me and it's you, it's us. There may be a God out there, but he makes no practical difference. And I now have to deal with the problems I see in my own life and the problems that I see in others' lives, all the things that are going wrong. And inevitably, the responsibility for those problems is located, is said to be located, outside of me. Now, I alluded to some of this last week, but I'd like to elaborate. So people detach it from God. They detach the problem from God. Practically speaking, we are practical atheists. But we live in a world that is surrounded by wrong. We need to deal with it somehow, but we're not going to deal with it in the way that God would prescribe because we're practical atheists. And so that results in us locating the problem, the responsibility for the problem outside of ourselves. So, what's wrong with the world? The system. Fix the system. The bureaucracy. The government. Politics. Now notice all of that is where? Outside of me. And so if the, if the problem is political, then the solution is going to be reformation of the system. Fix the system. The system is broken. Well, look, the bureaucracy is a mess, right? But the bureaucracy is a mess not because of the system inherently being the problem. It's because there are people who comprise the system. And there's something wrong with those people. And that's why the system, that's why the political system or any other system you want to point to is broken. But if you truly believe that the problem is outside of you and you locate the problem, for instance, in the political system, therefore the solution is a political solution, just do a cursory review of human history and see how that turns out. Karl Marx believed what I just said. He believed that the problem was the system. So let's have a better system that everybody shares stuff. Nobody owns anything. Everybody shares everything. John Lennon said, imagine. He said, imagine no religion. Remember that? We also said, imagine no possessions. Just people sharing all the world. Well, sounds good. It's just us sharing stuff with each other. If the problem is outside of us, if we can come up with a better distribution system, a more equitable system, things will be better. But what if you try to come up with a better system and it turns out the system ain't the problem? That the problem is still with you. The problem is still the people that comprise the system. What if that's the case? Well, now the system will fall apart. In fact, it won't just fall apart. It'll be worse than that. It will become totalitarian. Stay with me. 
it will become totalitarian because it's utopian. I have no idea what I just said. Actually, that's a quote from Francis Schaeffer. It's totalitarian because it's utopian. And here's what he means by that. Utopia means paradise. It's all, it's all fixed. If you believe the problem is the system, and you believe we have fixed the system, we've come up with the right system, but then you find it ain't working, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to force some people to get with the program. You have this idea that it's got to work, it's got to work for everybody. You've located the problem outside of yourself in the political system, and now everybody is going to have to be forced to conform. You start with this utopian idea, and inevitably it becomes totalitarian. Ultimately it fell in 1989. So we reject God as the major part of the equation because we act as practical atheists. That results in us locating the wrong, the problem, the responsibility for it outside of ourselves, perhaps in the political system. So the, the king or the government becomes the law rather than the law being the king. Power and authority are confused. Those who have the power are authorized. They have the authority to then carry out what's best for fixing the system, maintaining the system. And what happens is, friends, you end up with a situation where the cure is worse than the disease. Or you place the responsibility outside of your, for what's wrong outside of us individually, not just politically, but psychologically. And so you say the problem with people's individual behavior is not a spiritual moral problem, right? It's not a spiritual moral problem. Why? Because we're practical atheists. It can't be a spiritual moral problem because that only exists if God's part of the equation. So it can't be that. And yet we've got people behaving wrongly. How do we explain that? It's wrong, but without reference to God. Here's how we explain it. It is strictly a material, physical problem. So now this is not fixing the political system. Now we've got to fix your physical body system. To be, to be specific, we need to fix your brain. Your brain, your physical gray matter, needs to be tweaked. We, we've got a bunch of brain-damaged people running around. And, and this, is, this is precisely what we are being told. That the solution is to physically tweak with the machinery of the brain. Chemical secretions out of the brain, stop those chemical secretions because that causes you to do X. This causes you to do that. So we define, now notice, this is defining the problem within myself, but I've been using my words carefully. When we reject God in practical atheism, when we look at what's wrong, when we do that, 
It's not that we say the problem is necessarily outside of us. The responsibility for the problem is outside of us. You see that? It may be inside of me, but the responsibility for that is outside of me. To put it bluntly, it ain't my fault. So the psychological solution is to tweak the brain. Now, do you all, well, I'll talk about how we should see ourselves in reference to God in just a moment. Or I mentioned last week a sociological approach to it. It's society. It's not just the political system, it's society at large. And so we need some way to transform society, and lots of people come up with lots of solutions to that. One of the, one of the most popular is education. So by educating people, we will make them see clear, more clearly, find their place in society, play their role in society, become productive members of society. You hear this stuff all the time, right? But the way that's all going to happen is through things like education. And what it all has in common is it locates the responsibility for the problems outside of myself. But if we see ourselves in reference to God, if we stop playing the practical atheism game, if we look at the wrong around us and we say that's a God thing, somehow that's attached to God. And friends, if we look at the problem in our own lives, and instead of being practical atheists, we say, the problems in my life are somehow attached to God. Now we can begin to look at a real solution, both for ourselves and for the world around us. But we won't get the solution unless we first define the problem correctly. We've got to stop locating the responsibility for the wrong outside of ourselves. We have got to stop that, and we have got to stop buying into that. So what does it look like if we now see ourselves in reference to God rather than God being this just absentee landlord? Yeah, there's something out there. I filled that out on a survey, but practically speaking, it makes no difference. What's it look like if God's an active player? And not just an active player, the most act, important primary player. Well, now I don't see my brain, for instance, as just this independent machine of gray matter material. I don't just see my brain as what makes me do what I do. But I see it not just from a physical standpoint, but from a physical, material, and spiritual, non-material standpoint. The way I think is not just how my brain works. The way I think is how my mind works. I'll repeat that and explain it. The way I think is not just how my brain works. The way I think, the way you think, is how my mind works. Brain, mind. You say, aren't they the same thing? Uh-uh. The brain's the machine. The brain's the gray matter. The, gr the brain is all of the, the connections and the chemicals. 
That's the physical, material stuff. Let me ask you, from a God standpoint, are you merely physical, material stuff? You are that. You know, the wiring can go haywire. So we are physical, we are material, and stuff goes wrong with that. But I'm not just that. And when I think I'm just that, I am practicing practical atheism. You're more than that. Your brain is more than a machine, more than the gray matter. It is your mind, and your mind is the interaction between, yes, the physical, the material, and the non-material spirit that God has given to every one of us. And that's why there's moral culpability for what I do. Because it's not just a machine. It's a machine interacting with the spirit. Romans chapter 8. The sinful mind is at war with God. That's what it says. Now, how can you have a sinful mind? Let me ask you this. Can you have a, if it's just the brain, can you have a sinful brain? I mean, it's just the brain. It's just the, you know, my lawnmower doesn't work sometimes. <laughs> it won't start. I need a new spark plug. It's not sinful that my lawnmower doesn't work. The machine broke. So how can the Bible speak of, notice it doesn't say the sinful brain is at war with God. The sinful mind is at war with God. It is because the way you think is more than your gray matter. It is your gray matter being operated on by your immaterial part, your spirit. Your mind is your brain interacting with your spirit. There's a spiritual God component to how you think. And that's why the Bible speaks of intellectual sin. We, can, we sin in the way we think. Ephesians chapter 2, it says their, their foolish hearts were darkened, it says. They were darkened in the way they, they think because of, because of sinfulness. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We are ordered to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It's not just tweak the machine. You are a machine. Your body's a machine. You are physical. You are material. But you're more than that. And you're, but you're only more than that if you stop playing practical atheist. And now it becomes a spiritual and moral matter in addition to a physical material matter. And so, just like I said with the system, if it's the political system, if it's the sociological system, if it's your physical, material, body system, remember that all of that is made up of individual people who transact every moment of every day with their minds with the God who made them. If you're going to fix that political system, you've got to fix the people in it. 
If you're going to fix that society, you've got to fix the people in it. If you're going to be fixed yourself, then you have to begin to interact with God spiritually in a proper way. Now, that's the proper diagnosis of the problems. The problem is within us. The responsibility for the problem is within us. It's not outside of us in any way you want to slice it. The world has to make the responsibility outside of us because they have cut off God as a factor. Many professing Christians have, have cut God out of the equation and thus behave as practical atheists. And so the responsibility is outside of us. But we can only solve the problem solve the problem if we define the problem properly. The problem is each of us and our failure to interact with God appropriately. Now, let me just give you one other way that we put it outside of us, and then I'll move on, and then I'll quit. You say, well, you know, you, okay, the political thing, the sociological thing, the brain thing, you know, maybe I got some of you on the brain thing. The political thing you don't care about. The sociological thing, that's too out there. And, and I haven't done much of the brain thing. So how about this? Here's another way that we locate the problem, responsibility for the problem outside of ourselves. It's when, just to put it very straight, we point the finger at other people around us. Now that gets all of us. All right, so if I didn't get you with the politics or the society or the brain, every one of us here plays the blame game, don't we? The reason that my home is a mess, and I don't mean physically a mess, dirty. <laughs> the reason the relationships in my home are a mess is because of him or them. Notice, I locate responsibility for the problem outside of myself. And in so doing, we are doing exactly what the world wants to do. We want to locate the problem outside of our responsibility, and we are, in turn, playing the practical atheist. Dear friends, I get it all the time when I talk to people. So, someone wants an appointment, I might start out and say, what's the problem? There's, there's one for you, right? What's the problem? And invariably, without exception, I can't think of an exception to this. No one has ever come to me and go, I'm the problem. Nobody does that. When I say, what's the problem, the problem has a name, and it's somebody other than the person who's sitting in front of me. That's the problem. If you can fix that problem, life will be good. Well, we can. We can fix that problem. Of course we can. Brother Kirk already talked about hiring a hitman, burning down houses. Well, if that's the problem, let's eliminate him. I, by the way, for the record, this is recorded. I'm kidding. If that's the problem, let's get rid of the problem. 
Let's fix the problem. But the truth of the matter is, that is not the problem. That person is the stimulus that exposes your problem. That person undoubtedly has all sorts of problems. But he or she is the stimulus that exposes your problem. What they do is they push your buttons. Right? Yeah, he, you know, he knows how to push my buttons. So the problem is he knows how to push my buttons. And my response, forget my response, the Bible's response is, no, the problem is you've got too many buttons. You've got too many buttons to be pushed. You've got buttons hanging out all over the place. So instead of dealing with the button pusher, when we counsel together, we're going to deal with the button manufacturer. And that's you. I usually get one session and that's it. <laughs> I didn't come to talk about me. I came to talk about him or her. My friends, what I'm telling you is, is that the problem is, from a God standpoint, the way you and I interact or fail to interact accordingly, appropriately, with the God who made us. And that problem gets multiplied in society and in politics so that we have a world that's gone wrong. If we are going to live right in a world that's gone wrong, we've got to define the problem accurately. And the problem for you, the problem for me, is me. It's you. Now, if that's true, and it is, then the question is, what is the solution? What I've tried to show you in these first few weeks is the vain attempts that absent God in practical atheism folks make to define the problem. And it's always defined wrong because it's always located outside of, responsibility is always outside of me. The Bible locates it within you, within me. If that's true, if you believe the Bible's diagnosis of the problem, now we can look at the Bible's prescription for the problem. And we will end with this. If the problem is within me, and responsibility for the problem is within me, then is the solution going to come from inside of you? You're the problem. I'll just give you a hint about the solution. It's going to have to come from outside of you. So the Bible does the opposite of what we want to do. We want to locate the problem outside of us and the solution inside of us. The Bible says the problem's inside of you and the solution is outside of you. So we are going to begin to look now at the solution for the inside of you and me and all the you and me's around us that comprise the world so that we can look at now the positive side, living right in a world that's gone wrong. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to think, to think hard, uh, to think in ways that we're not accustomed about the world in which you have placed us to carry out your work and your will to look in the mirror and to think about ourselves, sometimes in painful ways. But we thank you for this opportunity. Because, Lord, each of us suffers from problems that have been inflicted 
But all of us, all of us suffer from problems we have inflicted, self-inflicted wounds. Because the ultimate problem for each of us is in the mirror. And I thank you for telling us the truth about ourselves, about what the, the problem is, so that we can accurately now apply the solution. I pray that each one here will believe your diagnosis of the problem that many here will understand that in their own lives, in what they've been imbibed in their reading, and in the solutions that they believe are necessary, that they have been deceived. That they have listened to those who inevitably locate the problem, responsibility for the problem outside of ourselves because they've detached you from the equation. And so, Lord, help us to remember that you are always the most important player in every relationship and every circumstance in which we find ourselves. And therefore, we are not to behave as practical atheists, but we're to understand that we interact with the true and living God every moment of every day, and that our bodies, marvelous though they are, because we are fearfully and wonderfully made, are not merely machines that break down but rather we are spiritual beings that interact with you. And how we respond to our circumstances and those around us exposes our interaction with you. How we think about ourselves and about you and about those around us is not simply an intellectual matter, it's a spiritual matter. Oh God, help us to see that. Help us to believe that. And help us, Lord, to be able to come back next week as we then look at your solution then to the problem. We thank you for diagnosing the problem and we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus which gives us the solution. Go with us, give us safety, bring us back. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.